0: Our reading this morning is from the book of First Samuel, beginning in chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathian and Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanai, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkenai sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanai, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is it your heart? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Then in chapter 2, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He rises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thank you, Gigi. That was stellar. There were a lot of hard names in there. She did research to get ready to read the Scripture. She probably prepared more for the reading of the Scripture than I have for this sermon, so hang in there. I'm not really sure how it's going to go this morning. Uh, no, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you uh, on this uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, this is a busy week for us, and so I would encourage you to uh, to take advantage of all the things we're going to be doing. We have a couple of special services uh, planned. And then obviously next Sunday uh, we'll all be here together. So we're very excited about the next, the next week or so. We're in the middle of a series. We're going to continue today. Uh, walking our way through the Old Testament scriptures. Talking about the story that God is uh, telling through his people Israel. And ultimately the story that, that has its um, fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And the mission that we are on uh, toward his second coming when he will finally make all things new. Now, quick quick recap. Uh, we've been looking at this people, the nation of Israel, as they've come out of Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years. Have wandered in the wilderness for an entire generation. A new generation arose. Went into the land that God had promised to their father Abraham. Was, was successful in conquering the nations there. They've begun to organize and settle into this land that is theirs by right. And as they are organizing and settling, this third generation since the Exodus is beginning to rise. And, and in the, 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 um, the, the ongoing occupation of the land, Israel's beginning to organize. They're, they're institutionalizing themselves. And eventually, in this, in this book that we have here, 1 and 2 Samuel, we'll see that the ultimate, um, the ultimate significance of that is that God is going to provide kings for them. And that's really where this whole story is headed to tell us uh, of Israel's need for a king. The whole history to this point really has been making a case for the kings that will show up as this, this book unfolds. Israel needs a king. They need David. That's the point. That's what the compiler of this material has been trying to drill into our heads. All of these stories have been meant to point us to David, and we know ultimately beyond David to his greater son, Jesus Christ, who would bring his kingdom of salvation and peace to the earth, which we'll celebrate in earnest next week. We need a king. And the reason we need a king, according to this passage, according to the beginning of this book, is because we're spiritually barren. Do You see that here, you know, the very, very beginning of 1 Samuel. David's story, the story of King David, begins with a barren woman. Look there again. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina, and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. It's interesting, the story of King Jesus begins with a barren woman, a virgin. And so what we see here is there's a pattern that is beginning to to form that that really you run into over and over again in the Scriptures. Often when God comes to rescue his people, when he comes to rescue his people, here in in the story of Abraham earlier, in the story of Samson, a a judge in Judges chapter 13, with Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, and then ultimately with Mary, when God comes to rescue his people, it often starts with a barren woman. Isn't that neat? And so we have this image, this story of barrenness in front of us. And so we got to just talk about that this morning on these three headings. What is it that this image of barrenness is supposed to teach us? What's the spiritual significance of this woman and her barrenness, which really is the highlight? It's, it's, it's Hannah's barrenness that's highlighted in these two chapters. So what is it? about her barrenness this of spiritual significance for us. What are the right and the wrong responses to the spiritual lesson we learn from her barrenness? And then the last thing is, is how do you find the strength to have the right response, not the wrong response to your own spiritual nothingness, which is ultimately what we're going to learn. Okay, so those three points. About barrenness. What is it? What's the right response and the wrong response? And how do you find the courage to respond rightly, not wrongly? That's what we're going to try to look at together this morning as we work our way through this passage. So, first, why is this theme of barrenness so pronounced in the Bible? What is the spiritual truth that Hannah's barrenness communicates to us? And I'm going to be very quick on this point. And really, you know, I told you, lack of preparation, sometimes not a good thing. But to be barren means that you come up against a problem that you can't solve on your own. To be barren, as Hannah is here, means you don't have the strength or the resources that you need to do life without God's help. And in many ways, Hannah's barrenness is a picture that the writer of this material is using to describe for Israel their own need for a king, their own barrenness. Remember, we're coming out of the days of the judges, and if you were here for the last couple of weeks, you know what that time period was like. It was chaos. They've been going around and around and around and getting nowhere, and part of what the writer is trying to help them see is that in itself, the the last 500 years of all of the mess that they've been in, is just another, Hannah's here is a picture of what was true of all of that, that they are spiritually barren and they need a king. But Hannah's barrenness for us is also a picture of our sin and our spiritual nothingness. In theological terms, if you would allow me, because of our sin, we've lost our... Original righteousness. That's what, the, that's what the, the creeds and the catechisms call it. But that word righteous means, I mean, it's, it means right. We're not right. That's what it means. We're not right. We've lost communion with God. We're under his wrath and curse. We're broken. And the problem is we're broken and there's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. We need a righteousness. But we are powerless, absolutely powerless, to produce one that would pass inspection. We we have a spiritual problem that we can't solve on our own. It's called sin, and up against it, we absolutely have no strength whatsoever to overcome this problem. And so that's what we learn. See, Hannah's barren. It's a picture of Israel's barrenness. It's a picture of our own spiritual nothingness before a holy God who demands nothing less than absolute perfection because His eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. And so what do we do? And this is where this is, where this, this is a real gift, this story. and Because it, sh- it shows us what Hannah does in her bareness and what we should do with ours. And it shows the wrong response first, but then there's a change in Hannah as the story goes on. And ultimately we see the right response as well. So let's look at the wrong response first. And it's just this. What Hannah begins doing, when we find her at the beginning of this story, and what we do with this, we need a righteousness, we've lost our original righteousness because of our sin... And so the wrong response is just this it's to try to work for righteousness. Let me me, me ask this question Why is Penina so angry? Do you notice she's angry here, right? And why is Hannah so despondent? It's for the same reason. Penina's angry because having children was her righteousness. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what I mean by that? For Penina, being able to bear children for her husband was the thing that made her feel like somebody and not a nobody. And she had lots of kids, we're told. And so that made her feel like a somebody. It was her righteousness. And this is what we do when we're confronted with our own spiritual nothingness. George Whitfield said it this way. He said that George Whitfield was a colonial evangelist, uh, you know, Methodist evangelist who traveled all over America preaching. He said that, that when, when we begin to be awakened to our, the reality of our spiritual condition, our spiritual nothingness, the first thing, honestly, we do is we often fly to our duties and our performances to try to hide ourselves from God. Now, we're naked. You know, the Bible talks about we're, we're naked. Uh, like Adam and Eve were in the garden, there's a spiritual nakedness that's a part of our, you know, our experience, our, our condition. And so what we do is we try to clothe ourselves with some kind of righteousness. And for Penina, the thing that made her feel okay about herself, the thing that was that clothing, that righteousness she was looking for, was all of the children she was able to bear. And if you notice, here's, here's the emotional reality that's attached to that. It's why she's so mad. Because what happens? Elkanah doesn't doesn't honor her the way she feels like he should. Instead, he gives his love to Hannah and not to her. And she's the one who's borne him all of his children. And in her mind, she's earned his love Yet, Hannah gets all the preferential treatment. And it burns her. Because it wasn't fair. She'd earned all of the love and the attention that Hannah received. And that's why she's angry. Because it was her righteousness. And she'd done well. She was the winner, not the loser. And yet, she wasn't treated like the winner. She was treated like the loser. But why is Hannah so despondent? It's for the same reason. for Hannah, here at the beginning... Having children was the thing that made her feel like a somebody and not a nobody, and she had no children, and so she felt like a nobody. And So just like Penina, Hannah, for Hannah, having children was a righteousness. And to get a picture of why this is so painful for Hannah, we have to understand what, what it meant to be barren at, the, at this time because there's a lot of cultural distance we have to wade through. And I would tell you, on both sides of our family, we've dealt with, with barrenness and waiting for children. And so I've walked through the pain, and the disappointment and the longing of childlessness with a number of people. And it's a deep sadness. It's a deep sadness. And if it's true of you, I, I mean, it's a deep, deep sadness. But it's not the same thing as what Hannah experienced. Because in her culture, to be able to bear children was almost the sum of a woman's value and worth. In Hannah's culture, women were not judged by their measurements. They were judged by the number of children they bore to their husbands. Big families were important. You'd have plenty of work in the fields, which we're trying to move into a house. I feel that now. As many painters as I can have is great. So, come on, kids. Listen, mine are just too little to actually, you know, do it to my specifications anyway, which are probably too high to begin with. But we paint and have fun. But you'd have lots of people going out into the fields with you. Uh, you could... Um, So children would mean wealth and social status for the family. You could fight off your enemies. So having children and having lots of children was everything. It was literally a matter of life and death for the family. So therefore, the women who had lots of children were treated by the culture like heroes. The women who could have none felt completely useless and were often neglected, marginalized, divorced, maligned, thought very little of. It's definitely the dynamic in Elkanah's family, isn't it? Peninnah's called, if you look there, verse 6, Hannah's rival, her rival, because the dynamic of jealousy and envy between the family. She Peninnah used her success in childbearing, we're told, to provoke and irritate Hannah. She was jealous, because although Hannah had no children, their husband loved her the most and it created all of this rivalry and jealousy and envy where she, Penina felt superior to Hannah and so she smugly looked down on her and treated her horribly and Hannah felt um, incredibly useless and was full of self-loathing and so she just was despairing and, and you know, full of self-hatred and it was just this ugly mess. Because for both of these women, this ability to bear children had become a righteousness. And so let me just say to you, if you take a duty, if you fly to your duty the way the way that these women did, if you fly to your duty in the face of your barrenness and turn try to turn it into a righteousness, then whatever it is, it may not be kids, it may be success at work, it may be your moral record, it may be, you know, whatever it is. It could be a, a number of different things. But if you do it, then, then you, it will make you either Hannah-like, you'll be... What we're told here is that because Hannah's roaring with agony, right? You see that? She's irritated. That word means roaring with agony. There's a storm. It's typically used of a storm, but it's a storm that's not happening out here. It's a storm that's happening in Hannah's soul. She's just going around. She's absolutely shaken to her core by her circumstances. And if you take a duty and turn it to a righteousness, then you'll be one of two things. Either you'll be Hannah-like, roaring in agony, Or you'll be Penina-like, provoking and envying others. Despairing, full of self-loathing on the one, one hand, or taunting, mocking, arrogant, smug, looking down your nose and pointing your finger at everybody else that doesn't live up to your standard and the one, you know, that aren't nearly as successful as you are. Now that's the wrong response. Okay? When you're confronted with your barrenness, to fly to your duties... To work for righteousness. But as we read on, something begins to happen in the story. That's where we meet Hannah, but it's not where she ends up being by the end of the story. Something something massive happens to her in the midst of this story. Okay, We read on, and what happens is she has a conversion experience. And I want to describe the conversion experience like this. She stops trying to work for the righteousness that she needs, and she starts to wait on God for it. She stops working, she starts waiting. Look at verse 9, chapter 1. The writer says, Hannah... After they've gone up to the feast as they do every year, but on this particular visit, they're eating, and after they have eaten, verse 9, Hannah rose. And that word in Hebrew uh, is an important word. It describes a decisive action. She decided to do something about it. And what is it that she decides to do? Look there with me, in verse 9. Hannah rose. She goes to see Eli, the, you know, she goes into the temple, you know, or the, the meeting place where Eli the priest is there, and she begins to pour out her heart to the Lord. She begins to pray. In other words, she takes her barrenness, her physical and spiritual nothingness, and she brings it to the Lord. I mean, look at the text. It's it's fascinating. In verse 7, Penina's mocking her and, you know, making fun of her, but she doesn't answer Penina. She doesn't even, she acts like, you know, she doesn't make any response to Penina whatsoever. And then in verse 8, you have Elkanah who comes trying to comfort her, and he says, Aren't I, you know, aren't I worth, uh, you know, what does he say? I should look at it probably. Am I not worth you more than I want going to say hundred sons, but that would be exaggerating. Ten sons. am I, am I not worth 10 sons? In other words, he's, he's hurt by her despondency. He feels like he's done a good enough job loving her. Look at all the generosity he's shown her. Hannah, Hannah rest your hope. rest your hope in my love for you. And she doesn't answer him either. She doesn 't respond to either one of them because what's happening is she's turning away from both of them, something massive is going on in her heart. She's undergoing a conversion. She's saying, I'm no longer, I'm not playing this game anymore. I'm no longer going to base my identity on what people tell me I have to be. I'm no longer going to look to my performance for my righteousness. She feels what's, it's amazing. I hope you see, she feels her barrenness. It's right there, it's staring her right in the face, but for the first time in her life, she feels her barrenness, but there's no shame. There's hope. I mean, she's the loser. Penina is the undisputed winner. That's settled in her heart, but it doesn't take away her hope. So she gets up and she begins to pray. And that's the movement of faith. That's what faith looks like. I was struck this past week by this simple statement in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 64, which we read in community while we're reading together, where the prophet says, The Lord works for those who wait for him. The Lord works for those who wait for him. It doesn't say God works for those who work for him. Unlike the 75% of our culture who believes that God helps those who helps themsel- help themselves is actually in the Bible. You know that, right? It's so, I mean, and that really is telling, it's so much a part of our cultural identity. That we really believe, we believe as a culture in a God who helps those who help themselves. But what, the, what, what Isaiah says is, it's not that God works for those who work for him. It doesn't say God works for those who win, like Panina had. It says God works for those who wait for him. Those who, for whatever reason, have come face to face with the reality of their personal, spiritual nothingness and know they have no choice but to look to him for help. Whitfield said most people, when they start to be awakened to their spiritual nothingness, they they, they try to solve the problem by going to work. By becoming a good person, by making sure they're in church on Sunday, whatever it might be. They, they fly to their duties. And the church is full of people who've done that. And what George Whitfield would say if he were here, and what I think this text would have us consider is that That's only the first step, but that doesn't make somebody a Christian. What makes somebody a Christian is a Christian is a person who doesn't fly to their duties. They realize there's no use in that. Rather, they fly to God's mercy because the Christian is a person who knows that the solution to their problem, the problem of their spiritual nothingness, has to come from the outside. That's what it means to wait for him. It means you recognize that his power is the solution to the problem, not yours. You see, verse nine of chapter two: "Not by might shall man prevail." That's what the Christian knows. I cannot, in my own strength, overcome the problem that's in front of me. I have no other choice but to wait upon the Lord because it's His power, not mine, that's the solution to the problem of my need for righteousness. And here's what happens in the text: There's part of the passage that I didn't have us read. That's really important. It happens in between Hannah's prayer and verse eleven. And then the prayer that begins in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, and this is, what, this is what happens. Hannah has a baby. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, this is what the text says. After she prayed, the woman went away and ate. Because remember, she wasn't eating before. She went away and she ate and her face was no longer sad. They went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah. And if you know the Bible, you know what comes next. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and her son's name was Samuel. And it was Samuel who was the last of the great judges who would usher in the time of King David. But notice, you can't see it unless you have a Bible in front of you, but, but it doesn't say Hannah prayed, she got pregnant, and then she had peace. It's fascinating. The text says she prayed, then she ate. She was, she was distressed before and couldn't eat before. She was depressed, literally. She ate... So, And her heart was filled with hope and peace. So it wasn't, she prayed, she got pregnant, and then after her pregnancy, there was peace. It was, she prayed, and her heart was flooded with peace. And then the Lord granted her a pregnancy. In other words, her peace, unlike before, something's happened. Her peace now is no longer attached to whether or not she would have a child. The thing in her life that made everything okay was not a child anymore. Her hope had shifted. She wasn't putting her hope for a happy life in a child anymore, but now her hope was in God himself. And so when she prays in verse 11, you have that before you, if you give me a child, I'll give him to you, no razor will touch his head. She's offering the child to God as a Nazarite, and a Nazarite as opposed to a priest who was, a priest was a person who was born into a certain family that were, were you know constituted by God to be the people who would oversee the religious life of the people. But a Nazarite was a person who would voluntarily give himself to the service of God in the temple. And so the, a child consecrated as a Nazarite would grow up in the temple, away from his family. His whole life would be given over to serving the Lord. Do so you see what that means? Here's what Hannah's saying. Hey, this is marvelous what Hannah's doing. She says, Lord, up till now, I've wanted a child for me but now I want a child for you. Before now, if you had given me a child, it would have made me a slave to my social status, to my husband's love. I would have smothered him. I would have lived my life out through him, but that's over. I'm giving him to you, and whatever you do now, whatever you do now is okay with me, but if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. She's no longer resting her heart in the hope of a child that will bring her social status. She's not looking To a child or anything else for a righteousness. And what's happened is her roaring agony has turned to peace. Now the question before us as we come to a close this morning is how can we find a peace like this? I mean, don't you want a peace like this? Don't you want that kind of peace? A peace that's not determined upon the circumstances of your life. And and so where did Hannah find it? And how can we find it too? And so the last thing I want to show you is it comes in the promise of, of the king that's to come. And the answer really is worship, and I say that because in chapter 2, what you have there is you have a prayer, you have a, you have a song. Hannah's singing a, a, a song of, of thanksgiving and, and praise to the Lord in response to God hearing her prayer and giving her a son. And so let's look at the song in detail here in chapter 2 for just a few minutes, okay? Because the secret to her change from roaring agony to peace, to this transformation, this conversion that she's experienced is really in the theology of the song. And the psalm begins like this, verse 1, My heart exalts in the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? She doesn't say, My joy is in Samuel. No, she says, My joy is in the Lord. He is the cause of my joy. Not the son he gave me, not the love of my husband, not my good reputation, not the approval of other people, which I finally have. No, God is my joy. I am exulting in him. And that's the key. God was her treasure. Because she came to understand that he is the only savior. But let's go into more detail. And I want you to see how Hannah's rejoicing. Her exaltation in God is the result. The com- the, 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 the um, conversion that she's experienced here is really a result of her seeing both a pattern and then also a person. And both of those things bear themselves out. A pattern and a person. And that's the key to us finding the peace that Hannah has here too is to see the same pattern and the same person. So first the pattern. Hannah sings, verse 2. There's none holy like the Lord. In other words, Hannah's saying, no one else in the universe is like you. There's no other God like you, Lord. No one works the way you work. You are utterly different and incomparable to any other person in existence. That's what she means by the word holy. That God doesn't do things the way we would. And here's what she's referring to. This is how God works. And it's presented throughout the song she sings in a series of contrasts. So look look in detail here. The first contrast is between the strong and the weak. She sings, verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. In other words, the bows of the mighty, referring to the strategies and the resources that we look to for security and strength, God actively works to bring us to an end of our own strength so that we can learn uh, that that it's not man's strength that prevails. Verse 9, not by might shall a man prevail. And so God actively works to bring the strong to the end of their strength, but towards the feeble, the humble, literally those who stumble and fall because their legs are weak, Hannah sings, he's kind, he gives strength. Second contrast is between those who are full and those who are hungry. Verse 5, those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Third contrast is between the barren. In the fertile, she, she sings, the barren have borne seven. Seven meaning perfection, right? That's a significant number. The, the barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. And then the fourth contrast is between the poor or the low and the rich or the exalted. Verse 8, he raises up the poor. This God God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat Of honor. What she's saying is, is if you can imagine a a playground, a school playground where kids are playing kickball and all the kids in the class line up, right, everybody, you know this from your childhood how this works, right, so we're playing kickball and of course whoever the captain, typically the captains that are chosen are the two kids for whatever reason that uh, have the most vested interest in winning the game that's about to ensue, you with me? So, there's an enthusiasm there for the win that makes them the captain. So, which of course, so you go, okay, I'm going to pick and you're going to pick. And of course, you, you pick, you know, the first, Johnny picks the tallest guy or the kid that can kick the hardest or the one that can throw the best or the one that's the fastest. And then the next person picks, you know, number two as far as the evaluation goes. And then on, down and down it goes. And then, of course, everybody's fear is that they would be the last person picked, which means that they're the runt of the class or the weakest or the slowest. Or whatever it might be, what Hannah's say? What Hannah saying is God is such a God that He passes over the strong, He passes over the fast, He passes over the capable, He passes over the exalted, and chooses instead the poor and the needy and the broken. And there's a flip flop that happens in the gospel because He is a God of grace. That's the pattern. Hannah says, the barren are the ones that actually produce more than the one who has seven children. The hungry, at the end of the day, are the ones that are fed, while those that are full go hungry. There's this, there's this flip-flop that takes place, this, this inversion of the way things normally work in the culture that happens in Jesus' kingdom. There's the pattern. But the pattern is there simply because of the person. And that, and the truth, that, we have, the, the truth that, we're, that we're confronted with here is we have greater resources at our disposal than Hannah did. See... The clue to understanding Hannah's hope and what caused the change that we see happening in her life here is at the very end of her prayer in chapter 2, the very last words that Gigi read to us in verse 10, where Hannah turns her thoughts to this. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And that statement perplexes scholar types because at this point in their history, Israel didn't have a king. However, what's been developing throughout the story of Israel in the Old Testament is, is their need. Like I've been talking, their need for a king. And so First and 2 Samuel is the story of how God provides a king, a man after his own heart, to shepherd and lead his people, David. And under David's rule, Israel experiences national, spiritual, economic flourishing, military Victory, success, and prosperity. So most commentators look at this and they say that this is the writer's way of introducing the theme of the book. But the problem is, is we've not met the king yet. And there's something else that Hannah does. She uses the word, she says, give strength. The Lord will give strength to his king. Do you see that? And exalt the power of his anointed. And that word anointed is the word that means Messiah. So Hannah understands that in the promise of a king like David was a deeper promise. That one day God would send the true king, the one greater than David, the Messiah, the Messiah who would sit on David's throne and rule not only Israel but the whole world and that he would make the world whole again. And of course, we know that this promised king, the true king, the one greater than David, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ because a thousand years later, another young woman facing an impossible birth sang a song about a child in her womb and what his birth would bring. And her song, which Jeff read to us, was almost word for word exactly what Hannah sang. Listen to Mary. She said he... God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away. See the pattern. There's the pattern. And it's not coincidence. That's on purpose. Mary is being presented in the Gospels as the ultimate Hannah because Mary's son, the Lord Jesus, is the ultimate Savior. All the sons born to barren women in the Bible, Isaac, Samson, John the Baptist, Samuel, they were all kinds of mini-saviors. They all delivered Israel from their enemies or brought about God's salvation in some way. But Jesus, the ultimate Savior, was born not to a barren woman, not to a barren woman, but to a virgin woman, which means an even more impossible birth. And again, what God is saying through that story is, my salvation is by my strength, not yours. And so the reason it works this way, the reason the pattern is there, is because of the way Jesus came to save us. See, the only way for the feeble to be made strong was for Jesus to let go of his strength and his divinity and become weak. The only way for the poor and the needy who sit on the ash heap to be raised up to sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor as Hannah sings was for the prince, the one who sat on the throne of heaven, to give up his place of honor and to come down and to become poor. That's the gospel. And that's why Isaiah the prophet can sing... In Isaiah 54, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth and who seen and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of, of her who is married. What is it Hannah sings? Do you see that verse five? The barren has borne seven children, she, but she who has many children is forlorn. In other words, here's what she's saying. Which person gets the righteousness they need? Is it the person who thinks they have the right, a righteousness or is it the person who knows they have none? Is it the person who works for righteousness or the person who waits for one. Better, Who really produces? Who really produces? Is it the strong, the powerful, the talented? Or is it the weak, the needy, the person who's outmatched? See, Hannah and all the other barren women in the Bible, they are a picture of where God's power and salvation go. It doesn't go to the peninas of the world, the first place finishers. God's power goes to all those who know that their strength is not the solution and they cry out to help. For help, Do you understand that? Where does God's strength go? Where does his power and his grace go? It goes to those who know that their strength is not the solution. So all they have left is to cry out for help. C.S. Lewis quotes Augustine as saying, God gives only where he finds empty hands. And so let me make an application and then we're done. We'll come to the communion table. One applica- two applications. First, saving faith then means that you bring your emotional reality into the presence of that theological reality. By that I mean, where are you roaring in agony? Where are you despairing like Hannah over your barrenness? Look at look at that. Look at, look, or, you know, look to that. Th- are you looking to whatever that thing is to provide a righteousness for you? See, you can look at your barrenness and you can despair because whatever it is you're after, you know, You need that thing for life. You're looking to it for life. It's your righteousness. It's the thing that can save you. And it always seems to be just out of reach. Or you can look at your barrenness. You can see it for what it is. That it is the God-appointed means to bring you to repentance and faith and convince you to turn away from all other false hopes of salvation, to turn to God in humility and weakness and rest in his grace as Jeff prayed. But then the second point of application is just this. If you're here, I think I have good news And the good news this morning is we run from these places of weakness and barrenness and powerlessness. But I want to be a friend to you and tell you that God's power, the scripture would say God's power begins to work in your life precisely at the point of your barrenness. At the point where you feel the most helpless and hopeless. Let we take the one prime example, how do you become a Christian? You don't become a Christian when you come to God and say, Lord, look, I'm spiritually fertile. Look at all the good things I've done. I'm a good person. At least I'm better than most people. No, the only way to have the Spirit of God give you a new heart is when you, you have to get to the place where you come to Him and you say, Lord, I'm barren, I'm bankrupt, I'm a failure. I don't deserve anything from you. I've done nothing that would merit me your love and acceptance. Please look upon me in mercy and save me. When you get to that place where you're willing and able to confess your spiritual nothingness, it's then, it's then that God's power and grace and salvation come into your life. And if that's true at the beginning of your life with Jesus, then should we not probably expect that it will be true throughout? One of the commentators that I read this week said it this way, and I'll close with this. I thought he said it really well. He said, in general, God begins a new chapter of his power in your life at the point of your greatest hopelessness and helplessness if you do with it what Hannah did. Because what Hannah did was she took her barrenness, her hopelessness, and her helplessness, and she brought it into the presence of God. What a great opportunity before us this morning as we gather around this table. So let's pray as we do that, okay? Let's pray. Father, as we come now to celebrate this meal together, we do just what Hannah did. We come not as those who are full, but as those who are hungering and thirsting. Your word says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that is us, because we realize that we have a problem. We are faced with a problem that we are completely incapable of solving on our own. We need a righteousness, Lord Jesus, and we have no ability, no strength, no resources to earn one for ourselves. And so we come to this meal as starving people, hungry and thirsty for you. So thank you that you promise that as we come, you meet us here, to satisfy our hunger. Just as Hannah prayed, that at this table, it's at this table, that the full who have hired themselves out, will hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry will cease to hunger. So as we come, satisfy our hearts. Quiet all of the the roaring agony of our lives. Cause us to rest in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He is a strong God, even when you feel weak. And that's the promise of the benediction. That that as you go, as he sends you, he promises to go and be with you. That all of his power and his authority and all of the resources that he has are at your disposal if your faith is in him. So it's a promise of his power going to work for you. But remember, where does his power go? It only goes to people who come to him with empty hands. Because he will not share his glory with another. And so... We put out our hands during the benediction as a way of saying, I have nothing, Lord, you need to come and work for me. And as you put your hands out, empty, holding them out, wanting God to fill them, so I raise my hands over you as a sign of God's promise to do just that. So receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.